Welcome to Finn's Fish Tales. These are my stories. I made them all up. Hello and welcome. This is the first of a six-part story called The Patriots. An episode will be released on a weekly basis. It's essentially a comedic drama set in 1960s Dublin. And I hope you enjoy it. Uh, again, it's available on finsfishtales.com, T-A-L-E-S, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. The Patriots, Part 1 A pocket of time in the city of Dublin, a coastal town with seagulls overhead and cobble road underfoot. Taking a wander past St. Stephen's Green and down Baggett Street, you can hear the echoes of rapturous singing, calling one and all to join in. It seeks you out and grabs you by the arm with a wink and a smile as it draws you in. Music as it is meant to be, all-inclusive and welcoming, not pretentious or selective. There is a spillover of bodies into the street in various levels of inebriation. A merriment of the human condition, rosy-cheeked and smiling. This is a session in full swing. As you enter the bar called O'Donoghue's, Guinness and sweet burnt whiskey mixes in the air as thick and rich-smelling tobacco smoke weaves its treads through the evening's bustle and throng of swaying singers, swaying drunks and people fighting for the overworked barman's attention in the hopes of joining their number. The pub is full to the brim and large sections of people move in unison to and fro with the waltzing rhythm of the song. Like flotsam and jetsam caught in the corner of a dock, lapping gently with the waves from wall to wall. People from all walks are in attendance, students, solicitors, actors and tradesmen, rubbing shoulders and having a time of it. A tall man with tight ginger afro and bloodshot pale cheeks, like tin red vines on cream marble, leers over to another young man standing with his lady by the entrance. Come on Eddie, give us a few bars. Not now, in a bit, he smiles turning back to face his lady. The man turns back to the horde, rousing them once more in song as he bellows, her eyes they shone like diamonds. He is the conductor and the patrons his willing choir. Will you come to my mother's Sunday, she asks. Of course I will, says Eddie. A short man with a look of worry shuffles into the bar towards Eddie. Eddie, I'm getting hassled outside by some big fella. Will you sort him out? Show us him, says Eddie, which puts a nervous smile on the man's face. Catching him by the shoulder as he turns to leave. Why are you always getting into fights, she asks. I'm helping him out. I don't like bullies, he replies. Eddie follows the man out of the bar to the sound of scuffling and yelping, followed by the smack of a fist. The surrounding roaring and rattling of the revellers covers all. On the far side of the bar, Leo sits at a corner table, supping on a pint of porter. He smiles to himself as he surveys the landscape. Across the way stands a table lain with glasses containing blood-warming tonics in hues of briar red and burnt yellow. Its inhabitants are in full discourse, some in song. There is some friendly jostling just to ensure full attention is being given. Super Atimaeus, Leo smiles to himself as he likens the scene to the great work of art, only to be brought back by the clump of two pints of Guinness as Eddie plants them on the table in front of him. All right, he smiles to Leo as he shuffles in behind the table to sit beside him. Grand, says Leo. Is Katie gone? Yeah, I've to go for the Sunday dinner. Meet the family, smiles Leo. The whole gang, all the trimmings, replies Eddie as he takes a sip from his pint. 
Guinness is always best sipped at first, so you can make a start on the head. Then you can swallow at your own pace, of course. Nice pair of jeans you have there, says Leo admiringly, as denim jeans aren't so easy to come by. I do meet Kate outside of the factory the odd day. They let her buy any seconds the factory can't sell on. A tall red-haired man wearing an orange sweater and tweed flat cap stands by the bar, surrounded by American tourists, plying him with drink and asking to take a photograph with him. Leo nudges Eddie and gestures towards the man. I see the quiet man has had a few on the hook tonight. Ah yeah, says Eddie. He's been in a while. Sure they'll have him plastered. Later that evening, the two leave the pub and with a wave and a swagger go their separate ways. As Eddie makes his way down Frederick Street, he listens to the echo of his footsteps on the pavement as the delivery of each footfall bounces off the walls along the narrow cobbled street. As he nears an archway to his left, he can hear the amplified whimpers of a distressed young woman under the deeper muffled tones of a man. Through the archway, he can make out the silhouette of a couple. He decides to cut through the archway and see what's going on. Suddenly, the man slaps the woman with a clatter that swells and resonates, the sound itself an assault to the ears. Eddie quickens his pace. Hear you, he bellows. He grabs the man's wrist with his left hand as the man attempts another slap. He swings his right fist, connecting with the man's cheekbone with a crack. They scuffle in the darkened archway as the young woman makes her escape. Eddie feels a hand grab a clutch of his hair from the back of his head. He spins around with a jerk of his elbow, hitting the assailant on the chin. As the man releases his hand, Eddie swings a dig at him, but misses in the dark, barely clipping his ear. But he feels something else, a hat, which is knocked onto the ground. Eddie freezes. It's a guard. The man who had assaulted the lady, seeing his chance, makes his escape through the adjoining laneway. Eddie holds his hands up to the guard. The guard looks at Eddie with a grimace as he picks up his hat for him and dusts it off before handing it to him. On Leo's wayward ramble home, he charts a course past George's Street, through Bull Alley and towards the Liberty's heart. He was born and bred there as was his mother before him. He looks at the old storefronts as he makes his way along Mead Street, recalling shopping with his grandmother back when he was a child for day-old bread and other groceries. The sounds of the street traders, the smell of sawdust and sun-worn meat emanating from the butchers on the corner. A smile crept across his face as he passed St. Catherine's Church, remembering his granny trying to drag him in by the ear for a prayer and to light a candle. You little devil, she used to say. As he nears the top of the street, he turns back around, as he often would, to take in the view of the Dublin mountains, visible in the distance, towering above the city skyline. Now they were dark shadows pinned against a deep blue sky, but still worth a look nonetheless. A mournful mongrel can be heard howling in the distance, and the occasional curtain seen twitching as he passes through and along the streets of neighbouring houses. His unsteady footsteps shuffling on the footpath come to an end with the jangling and turning of his front door key. In the guard station, the key to the cell is turned in the lock, as Eddie is bundled in by two tall guarda. There's a drunk passed out on the floor, and the room smells of piss and stale sweat. This is your room for the night, one of them jokes, as they firmly close the cell door, turning the key once more. Eddie finds a dry corner and sits on the floor, with his back against the wall. The snores of the sleeping drunk batter the cell walls in evenly hammered waves, washing over Eddie as he stares at the floor between his feet. Suddenly he hears keys jangle and the lock on the cell door cranks open. Standing there is one of the tall guards from before and a burly sergeant rolling up his shirt sleeves. 
So you're the hard man, are you? He inquires as Eddie raises up to stand on his feet and replies, As I told the guard, it was an accident. I thought I was getting jumped by the other fellow's pal. The sergeant continues, You shouldn't be fighting like a dog in the street. Do you want to have a go at me, big fella? What, and get into more trouble than I already am? asks Eddie. Malloy, says the sergeant, as he turns to the guard beside him. I'm going to give this fella a fair go, understood? Yes, sergeant, says Malloy. Are you ready, big fella, says the sergeant, as he raises his fists. Eddie raises his and says, no better pupil, with a wry smile. In Leo's living room, his father is slumped on the side as he sits snoozing in a worn green velvet armchair by a dying fire. Leo creates some sparks as he stokes the embers with a poker and places the fire guard over it. As he lifts the newspaper from his father's lap, his father wakes up. It's yourself, he asks in a Belfast accent. The one and only, says Leo. I'm going up, son. Night, da. His father ambles out of the room and creeps his way up the wooden stairs. Leo turns on the television and lays out the newspaper on the dinner table, smoothing out the rumpled folds before sitting down to read. He looks over the paper, giving most articles only a cursory glance. An English accent emanating from the television catches his ear. His father came south from Belfast and likes to watch the English channels for news from the north. Leo slows his page turning when he realises it's an art programme of some sort, as the man being interviewed is talking about the works of Irish artists held in a British art gallery. We have many fine collections from around the world. I find our Irish collection to be one of my personal favourites, says the man as he points out parts of a painting and comments as he goes. Lord Skeffington, the graphic on the screen reads. He comes across haughty in that upper class way. The interviewer speaks, Lord Skeffington, there has been a lot of talk regarding the return of similar works, the Elgin marbles, the Egyptian collection and so on. What is your view on that? I can't speak for the museum, but we here in the gallery consider ourselves the protectors of art. If we returned them to the Irish, they would likely store them in with the cattle, scoffs Skeffington. Besides, to the victor the spoils, he smiles as he looks to the camera. Leo crunches the newspaper page in his hand. Cattle indeed, he mumbles to himself as he looks Skeffington sternly in the eyes as if he were in the room and not on a TV screen. Eddie walks out of the cells past the desk sergeant. The sergeant scowls at him above his fat lip as he passes. Garda Malloy, following behind, hands Eddie his keys, shoes and some loose change. Hold off on the sausages, I'll skip the breakfast, he quips over his shoulder to the sergeant as he leaves the station. Outside the morning is beginning to break. Eddie stretches his arm upwards and yawns a smile to himself before sitting on the station steps to put on his shoes. Two nuns passing begin to scurry upon seeing him. Morning, sisters, he says, as they pick up their pace. Later in the day, Kate sits by the living room window, peering through her net curtains to keep a watch for Eddie. Her mother sets the table for his arrival as she tries to navigate a cylinder and other various motorcycle engine parts strewn across numerous newspaper sheets on the living room floor. She screams, Joe, come down here and get these bleeding motorcycle parts out of here before Katie's fella comes. With a quickened thump-thump-thump down the stairs, Joe, a skinny oil and grease-stained teen in ill-fitting overalls, comes bundling into the room. Scooping up parts in his arms and looking nervously to his mother as he scurries out the back through the kitchen, returning to wrap up the remaining bits and pieces in the newspapers they had lain on. It's a medium-sized room that doubles both as living room and dining room, 
as standard in working housing as the pebble-dashed outside. He's coming up the avenue, Kate announces. Her sister Beth looks in from the kitchen as she takes off her apron, hanging it on a hook. She enters the living room and sits on the couch as she fixes her hair. Their mother hurriedly finishes the place settings as Eddie saunters up the garden path. Kate opens the door to meet him. How are you? he says. Come in, she smiles. As he crosses the threshold into the living room, she closes the door behind him. You know my sister, Beth? He nods her a hello. Are you still working away? asks the mother. Ah, yeah, still with the corpo. That's a nice steady job, she says. You're lucky to have it. Yeah, it's decent enough, he replies. Beth looks to Kate. Is he still hanging around outside the factory trying to get jeans off you? Eddie blushes a little. Joe sticks his head in from the kitchen. Still racing the motorbikes? Eddie asks. Joe disappears back into the kitchen without replying. The mother breaks the brief silence. The rest of the lads are out. Young Sean is out on a date. Good for him, says Eddie. A lovely girl, well to do, says the mother. Her name is Nula, says Kate. The Duchess, inserts Beth sarcastically. Suddenly there is a large metallic clatter from the kitchen which startles the mother. For feck's sake, Joe. In St. Stephen's Green, Sean stands by a bench waiting on Nula. It's the spot where they regularly meet. It's partially shaded by nearby trees, but somewhat secluded from the passing public. It's a damp day. You can feel the dew in the air, but not so damp as to make the bench wet. As he sees her walking towards him in the distance, he quickly sits and crosses his legs, then uncrosses them, then crosses them again, trying to decide which position looks the most relaxed or cool. As she approaches the bench, Sean looks up. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. Nula smiles. Hello, Sean. He stands a little as she sits beside him and they exchange pleasantries. The formality of their words is betrayed by the smiles and wide-eyed expressions as they stare into each other. How's the apprenticeship coming along? asks Nula. Very well, I'm learning a lot, he says excited at the interest. You'll have your own tailor shop in no time, she smiles. Savile Row over in London, laughs Sean. My mother was asking after you, you could come over for tea again one afternoon. Maybe, yeah, says Nula quietly. Why don't we just go away, she asks in a sudden flurry. Sean is a little bewildered. We could go away one weekend, maybe. I'm not sure your parents would approve. I'm pretty sure your father doesn't like me, he smiles tentatively. Nula looks disappointed. Sean recognises an elderly man seated on a bench across the way. A well-dressed man wearing a charcoal grey suit and matching tie. He's clasping a small bouquet of flowers and his trilby hat sits on the bench beside him. Look over there, Sean nudges Nula and gestures towards the man. That's old Mr. Pierce. He lives on the avenue. My mother told me about him. There's a neighbourhood lady he's seemingly madly in love with. They meet here just once a year, she says. Why only once a year? asks Nula. Well, it seems the lady is a widow and feels guilty about seeing Mr. Pierce at all. So she only agrees to meet the once a year. Same place, same time. This must be it. Mr. Pierce checks his watch and looks about the park expectantly. That's sad, says Nula. I suppose he's happy to get to see her at all. The mother said that if she doesn't turn up, he'll keep coming back in the hopes of seeing her. Such devotion, says Nula as she looks to the man. Unseen, a man is spying on them, biding his time. When they look to be in deep discussion, he approaches them. Hello, young Sean, he announces. Sergeant Huggins, says Sean with a slight startle as he turns his head. Sergeant Theo Huggins, referred to locally as Tug by those who know his manner, a bully of a man with a reputation for metering out his own brand of law and order. 
Miss Burke, says Tug as he nods to Nula. Well, Sean, it seems you are intent on setting Mr. and Mrs. Burke to worry. What do you mean, Sergeant? asks Sean. Come along now, Sean. Do you think a fine family like the Burks would want their daughter cavorting with a common gutter snipe like yourself, coming strolling up the garden path with your found suit and hand-me-down shoes? Sean, embarrassed, looks downward. We're not doing anything wrong, Nula asserts, but is ignored. Tug leans into Sean and speaks quietly into his ear. The likes of you have no business even talking to someone like her. Wise up, lad. Tug pulls his head back. I'll be off. Heed what I'm saying, young Sean. He looks Nula up and down, Miss Bork, he says as he takes his leave. She nods to him. As he walks away, the two don't speak. Nula looks to Sean. Sean looks disheartened. That tug, he's an errand boy and a bully, he says. They watch Mr. Pierce in silence. Mr. Pierce still sits alone. He stops looking about and stares at his hat, still seated beside him.